Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hello and welcome to episode 38 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my life's dream and career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode I'm joined by the wonderful singer-songwriter Matt Dayton. Frontman for the 90s acid jazz band Mother Earth... Paul Weller's guitarist of choice, he was part of the Weller band during the Heavy Soul Tour 1997 to 1999, and he was even Noel Gallagher's replacement in Oasis. Critically acclaimed, yet an underground secret. Who is Matt Dayton? Well, you can find out on an amazing new documentary on Sky Arts, and if you haven't heard his solo LPs, then dive in as soon as you can. Plus, check out Family Silver, a band he created with Steve White and Damon Minchella. This is going to be fun, so let's get into it. Matt Dayton, thanks for joining me. All right, Dan. This is lovely. I, I have to, I'm going to kick off with the documentary. Usually I ask people how they, how they first discovered the music of Paul Weller, but we have to talk about Overshadowed, the documentary, which at the release of this podcast will be on Sky Arts. People will be able to watch it. How did that all come about? How did it come about to tell your story in that way? Uh, it wasn't planned. It wasn't a planned f- film or, you know, wasn't kind of worked out in any way. It started when... I was in a band called The Family Silver, which was a band that I absolutely loved being in with Steve White and uh, Damon Minchella. We felt there's something very special about the group. We just felt really good being in it and writing these songs. And we'd, we'd recorded an electric blend. And my mate, Chris Sheehan, who publishes me songs, but he's also a good mate, was sort of adamant that I should have a, some kind of short film or something out saying what I do because... It was all scattered to the four corners of the wherever. Um, LPs coming out for a month and then disappearing and all that kind of stuff. So my mate was keen to try and close it all in. So it was all, this is what what he's been up to. So it started with the f- filming rehearsals with the family Silver and and their first gig at, um, in Chelsea. And there was like a proper film crew and everything. And I was a bit like, oh, this is quite serious. <laughs> um, thought it'd just be one camera and Kevin and 
No, it's like a film crew turned up and um, they got the they got the gig and they got the rehearsal and they got interviews with the three of us. And then the band sort of didn't particularly split, didn't split up in a bad way or anything. It just sort of ran its course as far as it could go at the time, as far as records being put out. Kevin was like, oh, said to Chris Sheehan, said, what do I, what, what, what should we do about Matt's f- film? You know, that, well, it wasn't Matt's film. It was the Family Silver film, really. And, um, Chris said, just keep on filming. And I, through Richard Clark, Richard Clark is behind the Monks Road Social Club, various artists, um, it would have been called in the past, I suppose, what still is. He came to the listening parties that the family Silver were doing when we was putting out Electric Blend. He came with his lovely wife, Marquetta, and um, he just said, would you go in the studio and do a solo record again? And I was like, not really. But uh, then the band split up and I thought, well, that's, I've got the solo thing left, I guess. And uh, I got enough tune. So without waffling on, I, it, Kevin Brown, the filmmaker, came up to Mono Valley in Monmouth, uh, South Wales, and uh, filmed the making of Doubtless Dauntless, the, the last solo album. And then from that, started to film quite a bit. So it's up, but it was over like the period of about seven years. And we'll get on to Doubtless Dauntless and we'll take this journey as, to, to, to uh, get there because, it, I mean, it's a remarkable album, a, a beautiful album, I have to say. And, and we'll, we'll get to that. Um, so this is the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I want to take you right back to the very early days because there's a lovely bit in the documentary where your wife, Claire, talks about you as being this. Uh, a musician from his hairline to his nails on his feet. And there's a bit with you and your brother, Paul, recording videos um, and like pop videos. Cause you, you know, from a, like a ridiculously young age, you kind of create this band like seven years old or something. And then you're like miming into your own songs and stuff. It's wonderful. I have to say. So music was like a big passion from right from day one, almost right. Yes. Right. From the day one, when our uncle John bought us a Spanish guitar each, which we sort of played buzzcocks, Songs like Fast Cars, Moving Away from the Pulse Beat and um, stuff like that. We had the advantage of having an older cousin, Wayne. We still have an older cousin, Wayne Tracy, who was in the first punk band in Maidstone. So this is about 76, 77. And I was about nine, ten. My brother's a couple of years older. And he would have all the punk singles. So and, and Monochrome Set and Wire and all these kind of bands that we like. And we just wanted to be in a group from from as soon as we got given this these guitars and uh you know we just we were always sort of taking pictures of each other being stupid it's just like uh it's something to do after school really you made me brother you know we've never argued or anything we've just always got on and met in the middle with vinyl and records and stuff and uh yeah so we just we did we did loads of weird named bands like a psychedelic group called the <laughs> <laughs> called the St. Paul's Possibility. <laughs> it was a psychedelic group we did. It did only, you know, in, as far as the bedroom went, we didn't go any further than, the, than our bedrooms, but we'd make up pretend band names. I think it's sort of common a little bit. I hope so. Um, yeah, and then we got given a cine camera and then eventually brother got a video camera and we just continued to make silly videos, videos we'd like to watch on TV that weren't on TV, so we made them ourselves. Like pure t- tongue-in-cheek, none of it. Kind of a bit serious, you know. There's a bit in there where your brother talks about the fact that he realised what an amazing guitarist you were. Like you'd overtaken him in your oh. ability. But obviously, this was the guitars was a huge passion, and uh, and you spent a lot of time learning 
how to how to get the right sound out of this thing. Yes, yeah, it's because our, our dad he plays. Well, he doesn't play guitar anymore particularly, but he had a 1960s Burns guitar. It's what Brian May out of Queen used the pickups for. Not this particular Burns guitar. Very loud pickups. My dad was in wasn't in blues bands, but he was sort of he would jam at work. Worked for the London Electricity Board. He didn't get any work done there. Just played. So my dad was playing, and then my brother took the leap of going to buy a getting mum and dad to buy a guitar and an amp electric guitar when he was about 13 14 and I was dead against it I thought it was a a bit weird and then we both played but my brother's really he's a really original guitar player he's got, he's got some good we'd take turns on the guitar so he and my cousin Wayne would get hand-me-down guitars from Wayne Les Paul's made by Satellite the 70s company so he was always sort of getting you know into and Wayne was kind of the, the explorer he like went out with this girl called Tracy and his surname's Tracy we said if she got married she'd be Tracy Tracy but it's Tracy Emin the, the oh, artist wow. Yeah, she was. She was. She's always always been really cool. And she, we obviously she was just at art college at the time. But um, yeah, they were pretty close. But he was a my cousin Wayne's like a cool geezer. So he's sort of he was in in and amongst these people and working with like Billy Childish and people like that. I, yeah, he, he's sort of he's, he's sort of on the periphery of the music industry from the seventies onwards. So we get stuff from him, and you know. He, give us records and that so we, we would <laughs> just sort of just sort of me and my brother would be mimicking bands that we liked and bands that we didn't like as well and you know things like that and you mentioned the buzzcocks so around that time obviously the jam were becoming a big deal did that enter your world the first time i saw the jam was on a program called revolver that peter cook used to hope used to present we were on holiday in wales and uh they had they came on TV. They're singing David Watts, and the Stranglers were playing a song called Tank, I think, off of Black and White White album. And uh, you know, because that was the only. It's a bit like now the only TV. I know the internet's sort of far reaching, so it's better. But as far as TV goes, it's only Jules Holland for the past. 30 odd years which is fair enough but there used to be like loads of music programs so that was yeah Revolver was on at the time 78 79 and so we went out and got that so you had to you had to think about what single you're going to buy because it cost cost your pocket money so we got David Watts I think it was the A-bomb in Water yeah Street. double A side wasn't it yeah A-bomb and then, yeah and then I and then I I wasn't um like a a fan of the jam I was I was listening to left field odd Odd stuff, not deliberately, but just was gravitated towards bands like Punishment of Luxury that they only did one album at the time. I was too young to see any of these groups. And like Wire, this stuff's coming from my cousin, a lot of it. But the jam, yeah, I got into, my, my mate had the gift when we was at school. And then um, I really liked Dreaming of Monday off of sound effects. And, and I love shopping. I said to Paul, I said, my favourite jam songs are probably the last one you did. The B-side of, was it Beat Surrender? Yeah. Really, really good. I learned the solo off of shopping. It was a really good, really good guitar solo he does on it. So, but that was the first time I heard about him. It was TV. And at which point did you decide music was going to be your career and this was going to be, you know, the, the living and the, and the profession that you were going to pursue. Was that from the age of like nine, seven, whatever yeah, it was when you got really the early on. Yeah. Because yeah. I, you know, I know this is a Paul Weller podcast, but I was heavily into Queen because I was a kid and Queen were interesting. They were like exotic and odd. Freddie Mercury was sort of just odd. And I found out they had the same, we had the same birthday and stuff. And I thought, oh, 
to pop stars got I got the same birthday as this strange looking geezer on top of the pops. <laughs> connected somehow. And, um, no, I, I, I think um, from from now, sort of my I, I was mystified why my dad wasn't making money because he played guitar. So I was so young, I didn't understand what what would happen. Just a tombola of chances, whether you make money or not, in in a lot of industries, but certainly in the music industry. I didn't know at the time. I was dazzled by what was on top of the pops and. And then what my cousin Wayne was sort of showing us all these strange stuff on the Rough Trade records. I thought I really want to. I really want to be in a group, particularly in a group. I think a lot of people. I don't think they ever think of like I want to be solo. I don't know. I suppose Nick Drake wanted to be solo. I don't think he was able to be in a group. But my my thing was like, well, you know, emulate something that I've been buying from the Proms record shop. So I was learning stuff by the Stranglers and. You know, you've got to have that advantage if you've got an older brother or sister that, and they're into some of the sort of more more interesting things. I mean, my brother went out and bought Peaches the day it came out, and I bought So You Win Again by Hot Chocolate. <laughs> Go figure. Nice quality albums. Come on. <laughs> We're going to fast forward to 1992, Mother Earth. So this is right, you put a cassette through the door of, of Eddie Pillar on that. Is that right? <laughs> I think so, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. It, well, we, me and my mate Dave Ross, who's on, he's on Wake Up the Moths album. I did. I've known him since I was about fifteen. We've known each other since we were fifteen. And uh, as far as doing music goes and stuff, so we looked in the yellow pages in Woodford in Essex for record companies, like because we didn't have a car, so it'd have to be a walking distance situation. <laughs> and, and there was there was his Ed's. Acid Jazz, he said, Acid Jazz, Eagle Terrace, Woodford Green, Essex. We're like, oh, it's a bit of a weird name for a label, but uh, we've taken Acid, but we don't mind jazz, but I don't know if they deal <laughs> in any of this. So we played them some weird sort of instrumental stuff. We'd, I'd save up money shelf filling on a Saturday and during the week, and we'd go to a demo studio, you know, because there were no laptops or anything like that. So you just had to go to a studio, which is brilliant. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad there weren't any laptops at the time. It was like for the committed and for the insane, ready to go to a demo studio. <laughs> so we t- played this demo that I s- called Education, that's sort of like a take five, sort of thing on the bass. My mate was playing drums. Knocked on the door of this terraced house and Bunny answered it, who would eventually go on to being Catalyst for Mother Earth. Without him, we wouldn't have the name or anything. And he was staying at Ed's when Ed was with uh, with his wife, Melanie. I suppose Ed would be, it would have been about 24, maybe 25, possibly. And they had record decks out and they were drinking and they were just having a little in-house party and Ed and Bunny got their box of seven-inch singles out with Betty Davis and all this kind of rare stuff. And um, they said, it's a bit like The Small Faces, this track you've played us, which it wasn't. It was nothing like it. It was nowhere near like that. And they they didn't really find they could find a home for it. So they kind of, we just hung out for a bit and then left, didn't think anything of it. And then, I sort of it's it was in the back of my head after that. It's like, well, what, what do they? What stuff do they put out? And um, I got to know Acid Jazz via you know, eventually in a, through another way of um, sort of the studio we recorded at. Tona Debrett, who's in, she's in the Rock and Roll Swindle, was the sing the singing tutor that taught. Right. I tried to teach okay. John. Her son ran a studio in Tottenham Hale. 
And that was a demo studio that was nearby. That was a cab journey or a bus journey. It was one, one of the ones we, me and my mate Dave would use. And then me and Chris White, I knew Chris White through his sister. Well, I went out with his sister for a bit. And he was in the kick this sort of mod band on Eddie Pillar's Countdown Records, which was a like a mod imprint. And they were doing a song called I Can't Let Go, Holly's track. And Chris White, who's a good singer, really, he doesn't sing now, but he sung all the harmonies and the lead vocal. And me and him would get quite messed up on a Friday night, listen to the birds and Hendrix and this weird album called White Noise electric storm and other stuff other stuff and we'd imbibe certain things we shouldn't have and go to the studio the next day and come out with mainly everything was on echo but this the brett studio was where we were i was recording with my mate dave on a saturday there then on a sunday it might be with chris white and then chris came over one day and said um do you want to be in this thing called mother earth he said the geezer called bunny's doing it is my old mate from school. And then Bunny come over and I said, I recognise you from, you know, last year or whenever it was when I came over with this weird demo. And um, they said they were looking for a guitarist. And I said, I've got a wah-wah pedal. (laughs) (laughs) But not the guitar, just got the wah-wah pedal. (laughs) I had the wah-wah pedal for psychedelic reasons. And me and Chris White were doing this band called The Indoor Motors that some people have heard and really like, but... I suppose we could put it out one day. It's, it was just, a, it was like 1990, 1990. And I'd left the Wolfhounds. That was the band I was in when I was about 21 the year before. It was like an indie band. I wasn't sure what it was about, but I got to, that's how I got to know Andy Goldie, who's in the film, who's I've known for years. He's, he's got his album out today, actually, Dragon World in. Lights Behind the Eyes, really good LP. But I digress anyway. You only asked one question. <laughs> that is a great answer. Eddie talks about you being the missing piece of the jigsaw for that band. And the, and the People Tree is, is, I mean, it's a remarkable record. And, and Paul Weller actually talks about how cool you look and what a creative time it was. And in terms of how cool you look, there's a wonderful bit of you talking about the facial hair. So people <laughs> people who yeah, remember this band, and actually when you were playing with Weller, there's a bit I think you're talking about the fact that you look like a Mexican guy. That was all by like a complete accident, the facial hair, yeah? It's done as a joke. <laughs> done as a dare. Well, like a, like a dare, I suppose, in a way. I mean, we wanted to be happy with what we had. But me and my brother went to Swanage in Dorset. We both had beards. It's when, when no one really had... Beards, I suppose. I don't really. It's usually if you had beards, it meant you just hadn't shaved for ages. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it was not a fashionable thing. <laughs> That's the fact with us. We hadn't shaved for ages. Just lazy, and we just said, well, let's let's both do. I can't get sideburns; they just don't exist. My brother can get real good ones. So you had these mutton chop kind of. Peter Green kind of things going on. I just did this kind of Mexican, this long moustache with a bit there. And we said, well, I don't know what the competition was. There was no prize. <laughs> but we, we just sort of thought we'll just dare ourselves to go go out on the town that night with these completely, is it incongruous? Just odd looking moustaches and that and see if anyone clocks it. Just, just for a bit of entertainment really. Same as what we were doing when we used to do music together, mess about. It's just in the same vein as that. And then I I sort of just held on to my one, my moustache. And it was like, a, I suppose a week later when I got back from Swanage is when Chris White said, look, do you want to be 
in this Mother Earth project thing. It's not a real band. I don't know what it is, but Bunny's got these things called samples. So he went, oh, really digging the moustache. I thought, oh. <laughs> I was, I was, I'm stuck with it now, am I? So I didn't mind having it. It was a real nightmare. To, it's always like one side was lopsided. Yeah. So. <laughs> oh, that's a cool look, I have to say. And um, in the documentary, they talk about like you, you're growing in confidence as a songwriter at this point as well. But Paul Weller connection he did backing vocals on the song mr freedom was that right yeah how did that come well, about then him and eddie pillar being mates mod mod days um i'm not entirely sure because there's i think Anne marie who worked at acid jazz knew d paul's then wife and so they yeah they just sort of came down and and paul came to a gig at the subterranean we did right early on Anne marie was really important in it really she was working at acid jazz and she knew knew them both and gave us we couldn't believe it I'd never had this thing before this thing called a laminate you know backstage laminate I've seen pictures of them but I'd never actually had been offered one <laughs> yeah and um, it was when Paul was coming back playing like we saw him at the Mean Fiddler he'd just put his first album out debut like solo thing so I think Mick was Mick might have been playing on it I'm not he was there, Mick Talbot. They were like three gigs, I think. So we sort of got to know him from that. And he came to one of our gigs around the same time. And then he came down to the studio. And then we sort of, it just dropped by now and again. I think he lived, I don't think he lived near, too near, but I think he was in over West London somewhere. He just popped in and because he's so easy to get on with, it wasn't a problem to have someone you kind of recognised off the TV or, you know, I'd had records by here and there and, Mates had records by, so he just really liked Mr. Freedom. So he just, uh, we just said, well, do you want to do a bit of vocals on it? And that's sort of how it happened. He played harmonica on, what was it? Grow Your Own, a Small Faces instrumental. And that was when Kenny Jones's son, Jess, was tape engineer at Acid Jazz. And Jess looked a bit an image of his dad in sort of like 1966. It's really weird. Like sort of an original Small Faces drummer and then an older version. Very odd. <laughs> and obviously the Weller connection stays. Uh, you're in touch or your pals. Um, Paul talks about, yeah. there's a bit in the documentary, you find the quote, there's a bit in the, um, the documentary where Catherine Williams talks about you being the human leap here and that you'd kind oh. of, <laughs> you kind of go off on the radar for a bit, but, and then <laughs> people would see you. And, and Paul, Paul talks about this. He says like, you know, he hadn't seen you for a while and then you're back again. But Mother Earth is hugely successful, but burns out at the time it what kind of brought that to a close i misheard the tour manager this is the truth of it really i misheard the tour manager he said they're having a meeting about getting a singer in all right this is just sort of around the time of when we were doing an album called you've been watching which is deliberately titled because we were like well we were not going to do anymore and they have that at the end of yeah. those old bbc comedy things i misheard that they had a meeting to get a singer in we've never spoken about it either <laughs> If I'm right in thinking, a bloke called Matt Woodman, and they were having a meeting with Ed in case they were looking at singers in case I left. They wasn't getting, I wasn't being replaced. So because I misheard it, I thought, well, I, I'm going to stay in that band, and if they want another singer, I'll, I'll leave it. So I just, I just misheard it. Really, it would have carried on otherwise. Wow, so blimey. we didn't didn't discuss it. It just went. I said, I'm not doing it anymore, and it's not fun. And Chris White wasn't enjoying it anyway. To be honest, not to take the guilt off of me, but just it had run its course. I, I noticed something in the film I never noticed in real life is 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 when Ed's being filmed. I remember seeing it in the rough cut and going, "What's that? It's a silver disc on the wall." And I've looked at it and gone, "That says Mother Earth on that." 
And uh, that was the People Tree album. But we never got a disc at the time. This is not a complaint. It was just an observation. I don't know whether they could afford another silver disc. But we, I think what I'm saying is if we would have been shown, I know this is not to blame Ed either, but, uh, or any of them, but uh, if, if we'd have got wind that we'd gone silver, we would, we'd have stayed together a bit longer, I think, because it has shown that we were doing all right. We, we couldn't tell if we were doing all right or not, other than when we played live. It feels like you were kind of like the acid jazz thing was both uh, like a positive and, and held you back in a way in terms of it. You, know, you were the leading light of the acid jazz movement, but then at the same time, it, it's a bit of a kind of, I don't know, like a tag that's your, your boss of well, it's like not able to shake off. And yeah, pain in the ass. It's difficult because, you know, you've got the word jazz in the title and acid, and that's a problem for HMV records to stock you they don't know what section yeah. so our first gig was promoting Stone Woman that didn't represent the band by, by then no one would have signed us so Ed took it on he took that on as a project be fair to the bloke he, he saw that through when there was no band there was nothing I was on a couple of tracks Simon out the heavies was on some tracks which is really exciting because we looked at them as like they're doing alright no, I don't know. It's just, it, it's got, yeah, it's got its for and against sort of yeah. being on that label. But the name of it, I mean, just confused people. So, yeah. Yeah. and we were a bit acid jazz, I suppose. They're kind of horn section-y, kind of funky, fluty kind of stuff. And then eventually we'd, we'd well, they put us onto focus records to try and accommodate the fact that we weren't, we started to sound less and less like a funky acid jazz group. We were, you know, I was listening to Nirvana when they come out and that's got nothing to do with acid jazz. I just like the heaviness of it. The anarchic side appealed to me, you know, Chris would never, never really liked all the funk stuff. He was like Hendrix and the birds or, or birds and the, and Hendrix one way around and the creation. He played a lot of the creation stuff, um, Tom, Tom stuff like that on these mad nights we'd have real dangerous what we got up to, but you know, now I have to get into Heavy Soul. So this is, what is this? Match Day Program number five, volume oh. five. So this is the tour program from the Paul Weller Band, 1997 this would have been. And um, there's a bit here. I don't know. What, have I got this right way around? Can you see oh, that? Yeah. Oh, there you are. There. Look. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there you are at the back, Matt Day. So this is when the, the lineup had been Steve White on drums, Paul Weller, Steve Craddock, lead guitar, and Damon Minchella, right? And then they go, um, because presumably the Ocean Colour scene took off, Riverboat Song. Yeah, that's, that's right. Right, yeah. So you step in. How did that all yeah. come about then? I was doing an album. Uh, it didn't come out until I put it out later on called You Are The Healer. And in about, oh, while well, I was sort of in touch with Paul, and he was going to be on it. It was my second solo album. He was going to come down to the studio and sing on it or play a bit of guitar because we sort of just kept in touch. I wasn't, I was still in Mother Earth slightly. I think I split up while I was at the studio with, I remember ringing Neil and that. But um, I got asked, I think, because I was just in touch with Paul really. And, and I'd just fallen out with the record label for a pretty good reason. And, um, was like, right, well, I won't be doing Mother Earth. I won't be doing solo stuff. I'm not going to be doing anything. And then I got a call from Paul going, do you want to come join us for this thing we're doing at Wall Hall called Heavy Soul, this we're recording in Somerset. It took a while to get down there, but Marco Nelson was on bass at the time, who's brilliant. He's, I saw him the year before last. Uh, I haven't seen him for years, actually. He's a lovely bloke, amazing player. He was down at, at Nomis first, and then... For one reason or another, he couldn't make it for the gigs because his picture was on, I think, 
Day at the Races gig. Right. If he played, I'm not sure if he played it or not. It might, it might have, but we got Yolanda back in. I think she'd been in before. And um, yeah, he just sort of rang us up at home, just said, you know, got these got these shows to do. And I just sort of said, yeah, that'd be that's perfect. I'm not doing anything. Am I right in thinking the first gig was that Haywards Gallery one? No, it was up in, it was in Wales called... I've got a video of it somewhere. Cause me oh, uncle, the Big Noise Festival. That's it, the Big yeah, Noise. Yeah, yeah, Right. Yeah. That's, that a, big, that's a big old crowd to start with on gig number one, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's quite big. It was um, some of the gigs Mother Earth had done abroad that we'd, we'd do well or would be playing at. And that was an inkling that Mother Earth had done well. So I started to put two and two together that we'd, we must have done all right. I, mean, I knew we were doing all right, but record sales we were never told about. But... Um, so when I was working with Paul, I started to see these places again and thought, ah, we've played there. But the Big Noise Festival was, it was great because they were filming it. So it's really pr- practical-wise. It's handy for me to see it and see if I'd done all right or what it looked like. And um, But we had like very intense, amazing rehearsals with, with Paul. I, I, I doubt if they're any different now where he'd do a gig really in a rehearsal room. There'd be no difference. You were either playing music or you weren't. There was no, we're, we're just rehearsing music. You're either playing it, which means full on, or we're having a cup of tea and a cigarette. <laughs> One or the other. Very all or nothing with it, with the situation. So superb. I mean, you just get the train to Ealing. Was it Ealing? No, not Shepherd's Bush, that was it, um, of a morning. And blast your eardrums out for, for a day. Because so, it's quite heavy in there. It's like quite a full onslaught of power. More power than volume, really. It was. It was. It always gets mixed up with bands that go, "Oh, they're really loud," but it's like, are they really powerful? Because you can be powerful. You can be powerful on a little acoustic, a little nylon strong acoustic. Some of these Brazilian players are like heavy. And they're not playing loud. They're just what they're saying is got power to it. So, so working with Paul was, was was very much like that, you know. It was, I mean, he talks about it being like an angry album compared to Stanley Road Wildwood. I and mean, he was right at the top of his game then in terms of record sales that like you talk about. But yeah. um, Peacock Suit, Heavy Soul Mermaids, it's a very live sounding album in the first place. And, and yeah. I remember seeing you guys at um, Cheltenham Town Hall was the gig that came around for me. <laughs> And you'd have been playing, and there was a there was a chap who climbed up on one of the great big speakers and stood on the oh, top of the speakers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Paul stopped the gig. That's right. Yeah, he climbed yeah. over the balcony, stood on the massive stack of speakers, and Paul had I to came to come down. <laughs> yeah, it's really dangerous. He could have really hurt himself. I remember, I remember Paul stopping the. I think we were midway through a song or something, or nearing the end of it, and he went, "Oh, oh, oh, hang about." <laughs> Brigade. But there were some really special gigs around that time, like Tea in the Park, Don Valley. You went to the States as well? We played in LA and it was a first for me. Mother Earth never went as far as America. We were going to go with the Black Crows originally, but that never, that would have been amazing really. But mm. So I was really like, nearly went and then definitely going and went to New York and oh, it's amazing. It's um, We did some really good gigs there, like theatre shows and Went to the Motown Museum, which is sort of, I think, a regular thing for Paul and his entourage to do, always to pay homage to the, the greats. He kept, you know, I've seen pictures of him sitting on the steps with other lineups of the band, and it's always a stop off from. It's, it's really, really good to go in there, actually. 
Yeah. There was some really interesting things. I mean, Battersea Power Station was another one that you played. Oh, yeah. That was a good gig. That was. I remember seeing, meeting P.P. Arnold at that gig. I was really chuffed because she liked me guitar playing. She went, oh, it's good playing. I thought, that's a real, that's, I'm happy with that, you know. P.P. Arnold likes you playing. That's, that was payment for the gig. So, um, But I think it's Ocean Colour scene we're playing that, I think. Yeah, because the P.P. Arnold was there. So they must have been do- maybe doing a gig with her. Colleen Anderson was there. I know she was working with Ernie and Crispin. A lot of fans talk about Paradiso as being a very special venue for for Paul Weller. I've never I've never been, sadly, but in in Amsterdam. Uh, I was you- going to say I haven't played there, but I've just remembered I have. <laughs> Thinking I played, I'd love to play there, but I did it. It was was special. It's a very very special venue, and it lived up to its name. There was a really good guitarist in the. I wish I'd have got his number. He's, Fucking brilliant. Gold top like I was using at the time. And he was playing like the guitarist that I always liked was Danny Kerwin out of Fleetwood Mac. I just like what he does. Him and Peter Green together are like evergreen. It's brilliant stuff. And this bloke was playing like Danny Kerwin stuff. They were back in the dressing room. He was chatting, just going, by me, you know. This is he's really good guitarist. He's one of these people you just think... God, he'd do really well if he's in a band. They're like, that sort of made it a bit. You'd get loads of, loads of work. But it was a good gig. It was really, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, Paradiso. Now, one gig that I imagine is particularly memorable, and it does come up in the documentary, is a, is a visit to Paris. <laughs> <laughs> oh, blimey. Yeah, it's terrible, really. I'm not proud of that. It got cancelled, you see. There's a Docker strike, I think. Or a lorry driver strike, not be Docker Strike. And so we redid the gig and um we got a little worse for wear on the way up there and um the rest of the band weren't there. It's just me and Paul and Kenny. The less said about it, the better. <laughs> <laughs> Paul says enough about it in the film. He does, he does. So essentially there was I don't know who started it. I think Paul was Paul suggested that was- you did. It was it was accidental. It was it was it was started at the bar a little bit, and then we went upstairs. And my we hadn't checked into the rooms, and my bag swung round and knocked a picture off the hallway wall, like complete accident. And then Paul sort of, I think he accidentally bashed something over as well, and was like, "Oh my god, this is!" And then it started the thing. It's happened and then oh, it's bad, yeah. I asked to be upgraded, I remember that. After the destruction. Yeah, I went downstairs. I thought well, Keith Moon does that, so I just said I'm <laughs> to be upgraded. Yeah, so this is probably like full on TVs out the window, that kind of thing, and trashing that yeah, cell. But... So dangerous, it really was really dangerous. But um But you spent a night um, in the cell with Paul, is that right? In Paris. Yeah, it's just an unfortunate as far as laws go, it's unfortunate that that weekend France had passed a bill that if there were more than two or more people in a disturbance said it would be seen as a riot, which explained why there were 10 or 12 kind of riot police down in the concierge bit, you know, in the doors, because we were going to go on the bus to find where the bus was, but they blocked the doors. So I, yeah, I made a complaint to the receptionist, which is not, not what you do really. And uh, yeah, we got put away for a bit. So yeah, it's bad because it's just, it just kind of like for the people working at the hotel, it's like, oh, why have they done that for, you know? And I, when I came to, I don't really know why we did it. It was just a, it's a strange, it was a strange day. The whole day was odd. It was, had weird electricity around it. We shouldn't have been going there. So 
I thought, thankfully, no one was hurt. I mean, that was a, the other side of it, you know. But I'd heard so much about these things happening, you know, not with the jam particularly, but other bands that we were, you know, hanging around with going, oh, yeah, we did that the other night. And it started to sort of feel kind of um, acceptable, which is not it's not acceptable behaviour. So um, I thought Paul had gone through it before. So I said, you've been in a cell before, haven't you? And he said, no. <laughs> but, oh, my... Heart sunk at that point. I thought, oh, uh, so I thought you'd thought you'd I thought you'd you'd sort of know what happens next, kind of thing. And not really. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to have seen the reaction from John Weller to all of that. It what was Kenny doing? Kenny was meant to be looking after him. He, he fell asleep. Oh, right. So he fell asleep at the bar. That's what happened. And it was a bit like, well, you know, stop us. See if, see if anyone can stop us. I don't know. It, it was, it was, wasn't done. The overall thing was, it was done. I was just hard to sort of, it's not, it's not to excuse it, but it was done in a, we were laughing our heads off a, a lot, you know, in, in a drunken, merry, mad, anarchic way. And, it ended up really bad, but you know, I mean, I, I, John had to come out. He was supposed to come out for a couple of days, I think, and he had some appointments he had to keep. And it was a really, he didn't want it. He didn't want that to happen. You know, I think if anything, I was surprised I wasn't sat there and then. You, know, <laughs> you played with the band until 1999, and then a little gap, but then you became Noel Gallagher in Oasis. This is when Noel quit mid tour, the summer of 2000, I think. Was that right? May the 24th. I remember. Well, that was the gig I'd in it in. Dublin, I think, and then this thing happened very quickly out of the blue, well, quite out of the blue. I was going to be working with Paul, but I, I was in a funny, really funny state back then. I was, I don't drink anymore now and stuff like that, you know, just have a cup of coffee or whatever. But at the time I wasn't drinking just coffee you know, I wasn't smoking just Benson and Edges or whatever. So I was in a, it was a bit of a, not a tricky person. I was like easy to get along with, but I was sort of not, I was a bit mind altered a lot of the time. So Paul asked me to play at the Royal Albert Hall, I think. And I was sort of, I made some, I think quite unreasonable, very unreasonable demands at the time, I think. And uh, that went downhill. And then and then I got a call from Ignition Management. So I kind of had a rough idea. I only knew that they did Oasis. I didn't know they did other acts at the time. That was thanks to Paul and thanks to, to Steve White, you know, and Steve White's brother, Alan. I think they were in such a... F- pickle that they had to think very quickly and Alan I don't think I'd seen Alan for a while but I'd met him a few times because of Steve and uh, he, he put my name forward that which is really good of him and I'm sure Liam smashed a few hotel rooms in his time I think we've read about but yeah yeah, possibly yeah I, I sort of was you know after that room breakage stuff we met Noel and Liam up in Scotland. We were all doing, I think it might be Tina Park or something like that. And they all went, oh, hang on to your belongings. Here's Matt. I remember that thinking, oh God. Oh, was it, it was somewhere where we was at? They were like hold, held onto the chairs when here he is. But, oh no, not a good reputation. <laughs> so I ended up, yeah, I ended up playing guitar for, for Oasis for a few months, which yeah. is good. I mean, what an experience. I mean, those songs and, and the Weller songs, you know, such quality, aren't they? It's an incredible experience. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it, they really test out the guitar. Paul's, people don't really appreciate how clever he is on the guitar. They know he's good, of course, but he's real clever with, he'll come up with chords that aren't, there's one on um, science. No, no, as you lean into the light, I remember playing that all those years ago and there was a chord. I'd never played it before. It wasn't really a chord. It was sort of 
two strings held down in a weird but bit of the neck and I said what cord is it when I haven't got a clue I don't know he said it's just there and then it goes there it's like that, which is right up my street because I sort of play by ear. I don't really, I know the names of chords, most of them, but and Paul's the same. And just sort of, would, I love that about his playing. He just makes stuff up, no boundaries on it. So constantly pushing forward and trying new things. Always, yeah. yeah. The next album yeah. sounds different to the previous one. It's it's remarkable, yeah. really. And I was looking through, and I've heard solo career, but I, I'm. I was struggling to work out the order of the albums because, oh, right. and I've got it now, I think, but, um, they're a mess. Yeah. <laughs> but there's what's called the lost LP, which is the common good, which Paul plays on. And you mentioned Marco Nelson, Steve White, Mick Talbot, and we'll come on to them more in a sec as well. But it was, what was it like originally released on like a limited run and then disappeared. It got recorded around sort of tours and, working with Paul and Oasis and then I had this album it was sitting there I wasn't on, on the old record label anymore I'd fallen out with that lot for various reasons that are Record label reasons, the usual stuff really it was really boring I had the Common Good album and then Noel rang us because I, I gave him a copy of it I thought it might be up his street because it's electric and mm. stuff and I was really proud of it and then he rang up and he said I really like the album you know I wouldn't mind putting it out on Big Brother Records he loved it as well and I sort of got why he liked it Paul's playing's really good on it and then one reason or another that didn't happen maybe a four months went by and I just sort of knew a friend of mine who knew some small le- record labels and one was it was a back catalogue record label it was in Hackney and it was real I didn't investigate it thoroughly enough and gave them this album and then they went bankrupt within about a month of it being out if that copy's got either destroyed or shipped off somewhere on the cheap and just disappeared it was out it got it like managed I think to get one review or a couple of reviews and then it was gone but I mean it, it took a long time and a lot of a lot of love to put together for it to just appear for a week but I was kind of used to it by then not not in a miserable way of like oh nothing's ever gonna happen I just thought this is a very hard time of the of the year this is like the early 2000s and I don't know what I'm doing and you know you put a record out and there's so much more to it than putting a record out you know that's that's all well and good we can all have boxes of cds in our front room it's just where they go after that and who gets hold of them and they could be amazing LPs but it don't really matter if you can't put them in a shop no one's going to know. Happens all, you know, all the time. To try and find out what albums I've done is a bit of a task, really. I not intentionally. It's just how it's been. I mean, the good thing is they're about to be released on vinyl, and you can pre-order the five now, which is brilliant. And and Chris Difford's been on the podcast. Was on the podcast a few weeks back. So one of your albums was recorded at Heliocentrics, another link to Weller in the sense that he recorded his album there, and named his album after that. But Chris Difford wrote the lyrics, and you worked together on that. But that was recorded way back in two thousand three, and then released. What four years ago? Yeah, I was doing two albums at once. I didn't know I was. I knew I was making the album with Chris Difford because we were writing together. I'd go down to his place when he lived down near Rye. We just sort of. I had so many songs because I wasn't on a record label. Just load of them, sort of going nowhere. So we recorded that album. That was all on tape. There's nothing digital about it. It went from the tape to the cutting head to the lacquer non-digital album, and it sounds great. At the same time, I was recording an album called Wake Up the Moths, which I didn't know was an album. Is this why it's so confusing? There's no schedule for any of this stuff. So that came out, Wake Up the Moths came out in 2003, I think. Kids Still Feelings went on the back burner for the next 
decade because I wasn't sure about it. I thought I didn't sing very well on it. And I was in a bit of a bad, bad way by that point, really. I was drinking absinthe, not not all the time, but I remember having it at the studio just in the hope it might lead to other visions. <laughs> but, uh, I just thought I wasn't really on top of me game, really, when I was recording it. I didn't feel I was until the passing of time and Richard Clark at Monk's Road going, have you got any albums you want to put out? And I said, I've got one with Chris Difford. And he's like, well, what are you doing with that in your back pocket? And I said, I don't really know whether it's right or wrong. I don't know. I'm not sure about my vocals on it. Chris talks about it being an album of divorce and the fact you were both yeah. going through, yeah, through similar yeah, things. Yeah, it was horrible. I mean, it's heartbreaking. The lyrics, like, if you listen to li- the lyrics and stuff, I mean, it's a, it's a lovely thing. But it's, you have this knack of just writing a song that gets right to your... Like boom, and the latest album, Doubtless Dauntless, and that's the one we see being recorded in the documentary. And you're reunited with Steve White, amongst others. Um, I'm like, bloody how these songs? Where do these songs come from? It's incredible. From, from this hand, <laughs> that hand, <laughs> well, yeah. that brain. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if this year's been difficult for various reasons for everyone. You know, just not being able to shake hands, or, or you know, I mean, I kind of have. I probably shouldn't have, and there's some people that don't mind it, and. I've given the old person a hug and forgotten, you know, as we do, it's the second nature, you know. I hadn't played guitar for ages, like months. My fingertips got soft and it was like I was back to being 11 again with my hands. They were just like, they're going to hurt when I play guitar, but they didn't, fortunately. Yeah, those sort of tunes come out with, I come out with them. I just come up with one yesterday. I'm writing with Dr. Robert. He's doing the Monk's Road various artists album for this year. I think in theory, I'm supposed to be flying out to record it to in Spain in this place, which is lovely. It's in the film, actually. It's a place in the film. It's like, Yeah, you have this trip to Spain in the film where you, you venture out there. Yeah. yeah, just with me and my daughter, Romy, recording for Monk's Road Social Club, which I think came out. Last year, obviously, there was going to be a gig around it and stuff, but it, it didn't happen. Yeah, this is a song for the next LP. So Robert sent me it, and I sort of... It's the first thing I've recorded in about five months, I think. So just a demo, which was good, because I remembered how to, how to do it. I was worried I'd forgotten. I don't know why, but, you know. We should touch on Family Silver as well. So a lot of people... I mentioned the fact that we were chatting on Twitter, and so many people kind of came back about Family Silver and, and what a special thing it was for them. So this was you, Steve White... Damon Minchella from Ocean Colour Scene and Paul Weller's band. Am I right in thinking it was it was born out of like leftover Mother Earth songs? A lot of songs from Damon as well with projects he'd done in the past where they were just stockpiled, like Give Up Your Tears and Broken Windows were completely different things to be playing on and, ch- and really challenging and joyous. And the songs, which is sort of the rest of the album, I suppose, is stuff that I'd written for Mother Earth, which we're going to do... I can't think what label, but we were going to do an adventure out as Mother Earth, like the four of us again, and never happened, basically. It was just totally impractical. Bearing in mind, Neil lives in Melbourne and Bryn lives in Tokyo now, so it's just like impossible. wouldn't happen. It's why, it's why there's a new lineup of it. It's not any slight on anyone. It's just like fancy doing it. be good to do. So the Family Silver was, yeah, it was like Mother Earth songs I'd got ready that didn't happen. And um, and just put them to use, and we we got the album done. We had a, like a couple of days rehearsal in Manchester in Salford, and then we went in and did them properly with Gaz uh, Vaughan Hadfield, I think is his name. 
um really really good engineer lovely bloke lovely bloke and it's where it's like where elbow have got all their main gear and everything so you'd see them they're really nice they're kind of like help you with your amplifying stuff like not not affected by success or anything just down to earth geezers it's really nice you know <laughs> to see him just he's just acting nice you know but uh so we did that album and i we had a lot of high hopes for it i just thought it's one of the best things i've been on in any what in to do with anything it's just like i loved it and you know you're playing with that rhythm section you've got to behave yourself and play as best as you can you know, it's um, um, so so we yeah we recorded it and got raised a lot of money for pressing it up and went on the pledge campaign. There was a couple that invested a lot of money in it. Just went have it. We just want you to do an album. It was like the generosity was unbelievable, really. And we did it. We did those few gigs, but we had a tour ready of O2 Academies. And um, for one reason or another, they had cold feet. They said, not selling enough tickets, so we're going we're gonna to pull the tour. It wasn't a, like, a long tour. It was only like five, five or six gigs. It was a minute tour, but would have helped. Hmm. And um, we were, yeah, we were just about to do a second album. So, we've, we've, you know, I, I'd, I'd be happy to sort of finish it off at some point and, and put it out because it's got – one of my favourite songs on it. And you mentioned the documentary coming out of that, those those sessions and that gig at the end. It's Under the Bridge, isn't it, in Chelsea, the gig that's been... Yeah, Under the Bridge, that's it. Uh, yeah. And talking about this song, Overshadowed, which is also the name of the documentary, which is just a really, clearly a very, very special song. But talk about, like, you know, to, to write happy songs, you have to go to the darkness, is a, is a, is a phrase from, I think, from Damon Minchella. Paul talks about this, actually, in the, in the documentary as well, like music being a therapy. That clearly means the same to you as well. You talk about when you've had your low points, the electric guitar, and getting back on the guitar helps you out of that, right? Yeah, as an example, I I had Nick Drake's albums, like original first issue mint things, which were 20 quid at the time. They weren't this silly craziness now. I understand why, though, because he's good. But I sold them all and bought a couple of Gibsons instead. I just had enough of listening to this bloke in who's not well. On Pink Moon, he's not Nick. Nick Drake ain't a well bloke. And when I met, I was working with Beverly Martin for a while, and she sort of humanised him as well, and just said, "He's my mate. I lost my mate. That's why I see it. You know, because he used to hang out with her and John." So I sold the Nick Drake albums to get a Les Paul because they were worth that much in the end. It's like a musical therapy instead of listening to someone else's um, not say pain because that's not the right word with him. Very very melancholy stuff, and I just wanted to do some positive stuff. I was listen to a lot of James Brown and James Brown I don't think there's one song that's particularly melancholy he doesn't really even when he does them he shouts his head off at the end and goes crazy so um, I was listening to a lot of that and it was a, with Damon and Steve it's the most positive thing to do as well is to come out of, um, out of hiding really from you know, it's, a, it's it's not a dangerous thing, music, but some people warn it as like it's a dangerous thing. Be careful when you do music. It's like it's enjoyable. I hope it, in stuff that I've done that's melancholy, don't put anyone in agony. <laughs> you know, you don't want to you don't want to you don't want to burden people with a minor key. You know, if you can help. Them. <laughs> but it's got to have some something positive to it you know even the sort of the sad ones have got a sort of thing to them I suppose and each album I've done I've sort of taken seriously even though you know I've had to re-listen to them very very closely because they've been remastered from original tapes gone right back to what we've had and 
dragged it all out of cupboards and everywhere and remade these albums again from, you know, bit by bit because they were all scattered in the first place, the master tapes. Managed to get them all together. So I had to listen closely to them and they're kind of, I'm proud of them all, but I really like Doubtless, Dauntless because it's not too long as well. Doesn't get on your back. I don't. It doesn't get on my back when I listen to it. And the late John Dent, who used to cut a lot of stuff for Island Records, really good bloke. He 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 died um two or three years ago now. Well, it's just after Kids Still Feeling, so 2016, 2017. I asked him what's a, a good cutting time per side of a vinyl. Look, what, what's the fidelity, high fidelity quality? Where does it tail off? And he said about between 19 and 23 minutes aside. So I thought, okay, well, I'll record an album that's no longer than 19 minutes aside. Yeah, it was hard work doing Dallas Dauntless because I was producing it so I had to have it all on a schedule and within budget as well I hadn't been in that situation before clearly you're very proud of that that latest album and rightly so it's it's um, yeah. yeah it's a very positive LP like you say but it's um, it's it's a lovely piece of work man so and, and it's great to have yeah. you back obviously in the time since um, the heavy soul period there's been an awful lot of output from Mr Weller particularly over the past few years have you kept in touch and, and what do you make of the latest stuff you sent me a copy of On Sunset because I sent him down this dauntless I got in touch with him again around about the time we were sort of in the middle of making the film to see if he had any 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 memories on it you know if he could help us out <laughs> yeah, <fair enough. laughs> remember things and so I was sort of back on the phone with him after a, a long long while really I just sort of lost touch with most people I just got married to Claire and we moved up to Wales and I, I just sort of ticked along very quietly so I think on Sunset I haven't got a particular there's Mirable I think from Sunset there was another track and I can't think what it is now but I like the sound of the overall sound of the album anyway on Sunset but I haven't heard Fat Pop other than I caught him on TV on the Jonathan Ross show with Leah I hadn't seen Leah until she was, last time I saw her, she was like four or something. It's mad. Where's that time gone, man? That's crazy. Yeah. It's remarkable that every album sounds different to the last room, and even the, the patch from kind of um, Sonic Kicks to, you know, A Kind Revolution to True Meanings, yeah. right the way through On Sunset and Fat Pop is, I mean, the amount of stuff coming out of Black Barn Studios is incredible, isn't it? It's a busy place. It's a, it's a busy place. I haven't been there for yonks since late 90s I think probably but is is I remember he wanted to buy it where it's situated is really good you can really get into your music so um yeah I'm glad he's got his his He's got his money's worth from Black Barn. He's just never out of there, I don't think. So no, doesn't sound like it, does it? Right. So we should talk the new Mother Earth. So you checked with the original band members that so this will be okay, but the new Mother Earth is a, a completely different lineup aside from you, obviously, as the linchpin of this thing. But Mick Tolbert's there, Star Council fella. As I publish this podcast, he'll have been on the one before. That's lovely. Oh, nice. Well, he's a lovely bloke, Mick, as you know. So he's, a, he's, a, he's very easy to get on with. Got no ego. He's just into the music. You know, this sort of time of our lives you want people that are into the music and not into their bullshit so it's everyone you know Ernie McCone on bass and Crispin drums and Celine Fleming on vocals as well and Mick playing some great things so when I got in touch with Bryn because he'd moved back he'd moved to Tokyo where his wife's from um, because she wanted to see her parents again you know because they're getting on I said, I, look, I said, it's real dodgy to do Mother Earth with one person in it. It's real dodgy. But I really miss doing it. And you won't be able to do it anyway. Would you be offended if I 
did a different lineup. I said, but I'd get Mick Talbot in. He went, blimey, you know, I'd be chuffed if that's, he's replacing me. So <laughs> he was really kind about it. And Neil was all right. And Chris, Chris didn't mind at all. Chris is still over, lives over, is still in the UK. But, but that was from out, that was thanks to Richard Clark, really. That was only because I was working with all of those people on the Monks Road sessions. Family Silver had split up. And I just really, it's basically, I still wanted to be in a band and play electric guitar. So I thought, I asked Ernie and Crispin, who were just in the room with me at the studio, I said, look, Mother Earth, it's a bit iffy. I used to laugh at bands where it's just, you know, they had the original plectrum left. You know, it's just like, I thought, he's really not sure about it. I said, but who would play Hammond? And they said, well, Mick Talbot might do. And he was in the kitchen. And I just thought, I can't ask him. I can't. He's not going to want to do it. It's just it's obvious he's going to say no because it's, it's him, you know. And he went, yeah. And I thought, oh, okay. Bloody hell. (laughs) So it worked out well. Ernie and Crispin both play with Paul Weller as well. So Ernie was part of the Paul Weller band at one point. It's the same orbit, you know, it's the same sort of, just all of us are orbit in the same sort of scene, really, I suppose, even if we're not in a scene, we're just sort of, they're people from my my present, really, they're from my past as well. So we go go back, we, we can all, we've all got like nice reference points for stuff. And yeah, it's just happy. It's not, I mean, a mix just easy to work with and Ernie and Crispina and Selena, like we managed to get before lockdown because we did do a little tour last year in February before everything went off. And then we did an album's worth of stuff uh, at Ernie's for, in a couple of days, but we started to know it's the cafe shut and then the other shop shut. And they, just when they, they were just before lockdown, actually. Right. So I had to get back up to Wales because I thought something weird's going on. But there's an unreleased, un, not unreleased, unfinished, more at the point, Mother Earth album to be getting on with. It's about 11 tracks. There's just no... Oh, there are vocals on it, actually. But... Um, yeah, we're not sure what we're doing with that. We've got a, we've got this one lone gig this year. It's bizarre in Brighton in oh, September the third. Place called Patterns been cancelled, then it's been put back on. Then it's just that I saw this gig. The bloke there said, uh, "You know, are you still up for playing it?" And I'm like, "Yeah." You know, is it just one? <laughs> one show. One show this year. It's like. So that's that about. So there might be more. I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But the, the, busier next year, really. Steve White mentioned that you'd been working together fairly recently as well. We were doing stuff with um, some agents and that. And we heard at one studio, this lady used to work at V2 Records I said, when we was doing the Family Silver. said, would you better get some gigs or whatever? And she went, I know someone that deals in Heritage Acts. Right. And I'd, I'd never heard it before. I thought it was National Heritage Fund. And, you know, I thought it was to do with the countryside or something. <laughs> what's, the, what's the heritage act? She said, like the band you're doing. And I thought, oh, it's a polite way of saying we just got on and, you know, we're in our early 50s or whatever. And we're, <laughs> yeah. We're our heritage act. I thought it's a good name for a band. So that's what we've called me and Steve's thing is, the, is Heritage Act. That's the name of it. Love it. I love it. <laughs> At the moment, I just I don't know if it's a working title, but yeah, we, we, we've got some very anarchic stuff. We've got a song called Sweet Spot that's basically us, well, I'm shouting my head off on it. It's nothing to do with acoustic music. <laughs> it's a bit confusing as well, so I don't know when it's going to come out. We've got to work out what, what's got to come out first and what I've got to be doing. I think right. it's mainly the solo stuff, but I'll, 
I'm hoping to work with Steve on that as well. So he's been very supportive of the film. He's been really valuable, Steve has. Well, look, I need to let you go because you are such a busy man by the sounds of things, mate. There's so much going on. Overshadowed the documentary on Sky Arts. It's, it's fabulous. It's so great to have you back and fly in. And I know that there's, there's lots of talk about this documentary um, being able to kind of introduce you to new fans and things like that as well, which you, you know, fully deserve, mate. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I'd be good if that happens. It's, um, I, as I say, I haven't seen the final cut, but um, my mum sent me a picture of Radio Times is a picture of us in there she's all pleased because it's like a magazine that they get so like oh you're in that so I mean they're very supportive but she's a bit excited so that's um, I looked at it and thought that's that's good You can't beat the radio times. My, I remember no. my very my very first cover shift for radio. So this would have been I'm trying to think when it would have been like 1993, something like that. And I was filling in for somebody on holiday, and my name was going to go in the radio times. You know the little radio. Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. So they they got that, and instead of saying Dan Jennings, it said Jan Dennings. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> Dennings. Jan Dennings. Yeah. <laughs> Absolute cock up. Anyway, they called me Daffy Mayton in it. Yeah, (laughs) that Mayton. Hey, this has been so lovely. I've got two final questions before you go, Matt. One of them, you're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam Style Council or Solo. Which one's it going to be? Um, ah, I was going to say Cosmos. Oh, um, I'm going to say Shopping by the Jam. Yeah, because it's got a real summer thing to it and it reminds me of the best parts of London so it's just got a thing to it it reminds me of Alfie the, that Alfie film it's got that kind of thing yeah I, I, I wouldn't mind I don't mind having that I've still got that somewhere so you know I've had it for 30 odd years good choice good choice and the final question for you so the purpose of this podcast not only is to meet and talk to lovely people like yourself but it's be, to be able to interview Paul Weller to get the interview that I never managed during my radio career if and when that happens what should I talk to him about is there a question you think I should ask him I don't know actually um, he's very down to earth I ask him if he's if his favourite jam song shopping. <laughs> I don't know. He likes that song. I know he likes that song. That's a good question. But Matt, thank you so much for giving up your time. I've loved every second. This has been such, such a blast, man. Thank you so much. Cheers. I shall press the leave button now. My thanks once again to Matt Dayton and do make sure you check out his amazing music and the documentary Overshadowed on Sky Arts. It's a great watch as Matt guides us on a tour through his life, his music and performances, explores the challenges of mental health and musicianship. All accompanied by some of his friends and collaborators, including Mr. Paul Weller, Steve White, Damon Minchella, Chris Difford, Bill Fay, Marty Pello and Carleen Anderson. You can find out more about Matt in the show notes for this podcast. Next week, we head back to 1977 to a story that starts within the city and the jam with former Polydor art director Bill Smith. Not only did he create that famous spray paint jam logo that lives on today, but he also created the covers for five albums and 16 of the jam singles. Don't forget to share this episode on social media. You can tweet, then retweet, share and share again. Tell the forums, the fans, your friends and your family. It all helps us to find new listeners to the show. You can find me at Weller Fan Pod on Twitter or on Instagram and Facebook. It's Paul Weller Fan Podcast. I'll see you next time. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.